morning. My name is Dustin Krantz. I'm the high school pastor here. And let me tell you, I am excited that we're going to get to dive into the Word of God here. Um, this is a week in a series called All Things New. And this week is called A New Family. And whether you knew that or not coming in, some of you have spent enough time with your family over the last month that when you hear a new family, you say, yes, please. Uh, a couple here are like, I'll give you money if you take the in-laws too. Um, don't actually respond. It's better for your health if you don't. Um, but, but no, we're, we're talking about the family. And this series of all things new, it's asking, does Jesus really make a difference in every area of our lives? And today we're going to ask, does that extend to our families? And I, and I think that Jesus has a lot to say to our families. And so I'm really, really excited to dive into this. Um, as I approached this weekend, normally on Sundays like this, when churches talk about family, we look at New Testament passages that are written directly to families. That's logical to do. But as I looked at some of these passages, I felt a little bit of conflict inside myself. And these are passages that you hear a lot at weddings, Ephesians 5, we read that all the time. Um, but but they're, they're, they're just very straightforward teaching to Christian households on how we treat each other in light of Jesus. And so it's things like Colossians 3, 18 through 21, which simply says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. And those are good verses. They are Holy Spirit-inspired pieces of Scripture that do have a lot to say to our families. But I felt conflict this week looking at this message. Because on a week where we're asking, can Jesus make a family new? As I read those, I felt like those were being written to a Christmas card family. And what I mean is that image that you have plastered all over your refrigerators and wherever else junk collects in your house um, looks something like this. This is the Krantz family Christmas card this year. Don't pay any attention to the man balding way too early in life on the right. Just focus on the most adorable baby you've ever seen in the middle there. That's the version that we like to show people. And so we, we, we capture it. It's the one moment a year where we all look like we like each other and we're put together. We, we put it on film and then we print it on a card and we send it out to everybody we know because we like that version of us. And, and when we read passages like the ones I just read from Colossians, I can see how those really do transform that family because they probably need just a little bit of fine tuning and then they're all put together. He probably just needs to love her a little bit more. Looking at your card, those kids probably just need to obey a little bit more. And then they'll be the family that God desires. And that's conflict inside of me because I don't know that that's what reality really looks like. That's our Christmas card version, but if you were to come to our house on any given night, you'd see a picture that looks more like this. Yep. He's cute even when he's mad. But, but you don't get the full effect of what's going on here because you don't hear the sound that comes out of his mouth when he makes that face. It's delightful. Um, you don't get to see everything that he has deposited all over mom and dad in the process of getting like that. Um, you don't see the clutter that has gathered all over our house in the last three days of not sitting down for more than a half hour to breathe. You don't see the dog that's running around with mud all over his paws. 
putting it on my furniture, which I love him for and thank him for every day. You, you don't see the chaos that is really going on. And if we're honest, most of our lives don't look like a Christmas card. Okay, our, our stories don't need just a little bit of fine-tuning to feel like they've really been made new. Maybe your story looks like a family I know. It's a blended family. And so there's multiple kids in the house, same mom, different dads. And while it's never been spoken by anyone, never been, been even thought by mom and dad, there is a perception among the kids that one of them is favored over the others. One of them is more special because of who his dad is, and it drives a wedge between them. And when they're little, that wedge looks like harmless fighting, but as they get older and older, that wedge looks very much like hatred. Maybe your story's like another family I know. They're not all on the same page about who Jesus is. And it's a constant source of tension underneath everything. They love each other, they love being with each other, they cherish each other, but they aren't in agreement on this really big thing that's a part of their life. And so it causes heartburn for some, and, and it makes some feel like they're an outsider in the place they're supposed to mo feel most in. Maybe your story is like, like another family I know. And some news has come forth, some information about a member of the family. And it's going to change everybody in the family's reality. Possible infidelity, indiscretion. And, and the person that was supposed to be most trusted, most dear to us in this world may have betrayed us on a level we can imagine. And everybody's got to pick sides because we don't actually know the truth. But believing that person to everybody else that we encounter just looks ridiculous. Forgiveness and healing, it seems impossible. And if that's reality, it doesn't look anything like a Christmas card. And if that's, that's the story that's in your world, or you've got something like that, you say, really, Jesus, what do you say to that? I actually think Jesus has a lot to say to that. Because every family that I just told you about is the family of Jesus. And I'm not talking about the metaphorical worldwide church family of Jesus. I mean literally the physical family of Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe that doesn't look anything like the family of Jesus you think you know, so let's, let's sort of visit it. Matthew 1.18. It's the quickest version of how Jesus came about as a human being. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. There it is. Her reality has changed. And she's got to go to Joseph. She has to say, honey, listen, I know, I know this is crazy, but I'm pregnant. And, and you and I, we both know it's not you. But, but believe me, I haven't been unfaithful. And everybody's got to pick sides. Do I believe Mary? Do I not? Regardless of whether I believe her or not, our whole family situation has been changed. And Joseph has the toughest decision of all. Not only do I trust Mary, do I believe Mary, can I still spend the rest of my life with someone who may have betrayed me in an unbelievable way? Can I father a kid that's not mine? 
Am I willing to walk past the judgmental stares and the comments under the breath of everybody on my way into town for the rest of my life because of who my wife and children are? Joseph's gut reaction, the next verse 19, says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. We just had Christmas. We know that that's not where it ends up, but we're not to that point in the story yet. Jesus would grow up, and he would have a couple issues with his parents, but, but the biggest display of dysfunction in the family of Jesus is with his siblings. And I sort of get that. Okay, You think you have an overachiever in your family, try having God for a brother. You can just see it like, no, Mom, it was Jesus. And she's like, really? The person who has never sinned, it's him. You're going to put that on him. I get it. It's tough. But, but this is, it wasn't just that Jesus was, was an overachiever. John 7, the first five verses, they tell us the real root of the issue with Jesus and his siblings. It says this. It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Side note, sounds like an excellent reason not to go to Judea. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, his brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. I can't get over that. They lived in the same house with him. And they didn't believe. And he's telling people I'm the son of man. Mark chapter 3 tells a story. John 7 is not the only time they had issues. Mark chapter 3, Jesus is up to his ears in ministry. There's a crowd that's gathered. So many people are there that nobody can get in or out of the house. It's packed. And Jesus' family gets word of it and his brothers decide... This has gone too far. Jesus is out of his mind. This is out of control. We need to put an end to this. So they go to the house and they send word in that they're there. And Jesus blows them off, completely disowns them. And I can't imagine how fun dinner conversation was that night. And as bad as that might be, I think John 19 gives us the best picture of just how bad it was between Jesus and his brothers. John 19 is the end of Jesus' life. He's hanging on a cross. Mary's watching her son die. We know that Mary's there because John takes the time to record lots of people who are present. It says Jesus' mom's there, his aunt. Lists several friends. It says John himself is there. You know who John doesn't list? Jesus' brothers. They were good Jewish people. They would have been in Jerusalem at the time it happened, and they're nowhere to be found. It's the worst moment of his life. And forget Jesus, it's the worst moment of their mom's life. And they're gone. I don't know about you, but if I'm the family of Jesus, there's not a single bit of that that I want to put on the Christmas card. That's a mess. And really, it makes me ask what... What can be done with a mess like that? And really, if Jesus' family can't figure it out, if, there's, if that thing ends in tragedy, my family's doomed. There's a change that happens. There's a transition that has to be made in the family of Jesus and in our families if we want to see things made new.
we see that transition spelled out pretty, pretty beautifully in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to live there for a little bit. Ephesians chapter 1, it's in the New Testament, and it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. This is a letter that was written 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And in 30 years, the gospel has been spreading. People have been saying Jesus is alive, and that word has been traveling. But the other thing that happens over 30 years is you have some time to think about what something means. Okay, it's not just an event, but there are implications of that event. And so Paul is this write, writing this letter 30 years after the resurrection. And he's trying to describe to the Ephesians what it means that the resurrection has taken place. And so Paul's writing to them, and, and this is a church that has new people coming in. New people are professing faith in Jesus. And Paul starts out that letter by saying, this is awesome. I am so glad that you believe. You know Jesus is Lord, and that is such a good thing. Because you believe in that, you get to be a part of God's plan that has been set in motion by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's great. And it's a great start. But in verse 18, he says, I'm praying for something more for you. Verses 18 through 20, if you got the hard copy, circle them, underline them, star, do whatever you got to to say this is important. If you got the electronic version, tap it, highlight it, tweet it, whatever you got to do. Like, this is good stuff, okay? Get 18 through 20, we're going to stay here for a little bit. He says this, and this is where we see the transition that has to happen. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Did you catch it? Maybe not because you read in English. The Bible was written in ancient Greek because that's what people spoke. And language to language, words don't always play nice with each other. Things don't always translate nicely, just one word to one word. And so that word right there at the beginning, that phrase, the eyes of your heart be enlightened. We read, that's what it says. If you look in a different version, if you have a different version than the one that we read, that word heart is probably written as something else. Because none of us can agree on what the word is that's supposed to be there. Because it's a Greek word that doesn't translate nicely to English. That word right there, literally, it means mind. But Paul's not talking about a mind because we think of a mind as a thing that knows information and facts. Right? That's our brain. That's how we know stuff. And Paul, that's not what he's talking about. It's a different word that means how you understand. How you interpret. How you process. How you take in life and make sense of it. And so this is the Dustin Krantz version of, of Ephesians 1.18. And I think a better way to articulate this would be, I pray that the eyes through which you understand this life would be opened so that you could actually know the incredible hope to which you have been called through Jesus. See, Paul is saying, you know Jesus as Lord. You've made that profession. That's good. But you can't just know him as information. You can't just know him as fact. I pray that the way you see this world would be transformed. The eyes through which you view everything 
I pray that you would view them through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because when you can do that, when you make that transition, you would be amazed at what you discover. He says the first thing you discover is a hope in Jesus that is unlike anything you've ever dreamed of. And it's not just a hope that one day you'll get to go to heaven. It is a hope right now in this life, in your circumstances that nothing else can offer. He says you'll also experience the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. What he means by that is a life lived inside of Jesus, a life abiding in Jesus, is the best life that you could ever ask for. It is the most fulfilling existence you will ever find, and you would really understand that if you began to process your life not just as Jesus as knowledge, but Jesus as the filter through which you view everything. Lastly, he says, if you could get that, you would understand the power that is available to you. And that's crucial. I don't know if you know this, the Center for Disease Control predicts that the death rate for this year will be 100%. Same as last year. Same as every year. (laughs) Okay, it's been hovering right at 100% forever. As humans, we die. It is an inescapable fact. We can do whatever we want to to delay, and boy, we've thought of a whole bunch of stuff, but we can't get around it. Every single one of us will die. It is the most powerful force that we have encountered. And Paul says, there is a power that conquered death. So let me ask you, what could a power stronger than death not change? What bit of dysfunction, of mess in your family, whether that's right now, in the future, or happened a long time ago and is still bearing out bad fruit all over your family? What bit of mess in your world could not be changed, could not be made new by a power like that? Paul says when you really get this, when you stop just knowing Jesus as information, when you start to really know Jesus, when you start to make the filter through which you understand everything in life, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, everything will change. Your family will change. I know that because it changed Jesus. Remember Mary and Joseph? The Bible says Mary was terrified when she received the news. Yet, in the midst of her husband Joseph, who is also deciding that he's going to end his marriage before it's ever begun, they're visited by messengers from God. And those messengers paint a picture of the hope that this child would bring into the world. And it is a hope unlike anything we've ever known. It's the hope that's been told to us is coming for a long, long, long time. And because they see that hope, Mary is able to say, generations will call me blessed because of this. And Joseph is not only able to trust Mary, when he catches a picture of that hope, he will move heaven and earth to protect that child and woman. He'll relocate his family to Egypt for two years. 
to make sure that nothing could damage that hope. Remember the siblings of Jesus. Let me introduce you to the half-brother of Jesus named James. James is an individual who would go on to write a letter to the early church. You have access to that letter in your Bible. It's called the book of James. And this is James' introduction to the church. This is how he introduces himself. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word servant right there, it's a Greek word named doulos. And it has multiple meanings in English. We use servant because we're not comfortable with the other word. It's slave. The exact same brother who did not believe. The brother who tried to pull Jesus out of ministry. The brother who was nowhere to be found at the crucifixion. Introduces himself as a slave to Jesus. Because James encountered the power of the resurrection. And the resurrection for him changed everything. And so now life as a slave to Jesus is better than any life I could ever hope to live outside of him. See, what happened in Jesus' family is they stopped knowing him as a fact, as information, as a placeholder at the dinner table. And they started knowing Jesus as the reality they needed to do life. And let me tell you, until our family stops knowing Jesus as fact, as information, as a placeholder at the dinner table for 20 seconds before we eat, we won't be changed. But if we can get that, if we can move past knowing you as fact, if we can make the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the way, the eyes through which we see this world, anything's possible. What's that look like? Right? Okay, I, okay, I get it. Jesus is important. I've got to know him as more than just information. We've got to put Jesus into our family if we want to see our family made new. What's that look like lived out? I don't know exactly for him. I don't stand up here as the guy that's got it all figured out, okay? I will tell you, there are some key components I think got to be present. If we want to see Jesus in our families the way he wants to be there. So I'd ask you a few questions about these areas. First, I would ask you, where does the word of God get to live inside your home? And I don't mean we all go to Bible studies somewhere and then we come back and we never talk about it. I'm saying inside the four walls of your house, inside the intentional relationships that you have with each other in your family, where does the word of God get to live? And I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. Right now, we have a 10-month-old and we do the beginner's Bible. And it's this little picture book Bible that it's written like a children's book. And he sits on my lap after bath time and we read the stories and, and he just drools all over the pages and tries to eat them because that's what a 10-month-old does. But, but from the very beginning, we're trying to say to him, listen, this is important. And every night we point at that Jesus guy on the cover and we say, we like him the best. I have a friend who has a two-year-old and, and they do the beginner's Bible, they do it on the iPad. And daughter gets to zoom in on the pictures and she gets to point out which ones are her favorite. The Bible is a special moment in her day. As a kid gets older, you, you tell the stories of the Bible to them. Do you read the Bible to them? 
as they learn to read, do you celebrate them reading it? Do you let them read the stories to you and show them how wonderful it is to discover the truths of God? You become a thespian every night and act out David and Goliath with sheets and broomsticks. Whatever you got to do. And when they get too old for story time, because there is a point where that's not cool anymore, are you inviting them to study God's word on their own? Are you showing them what it looks like to be in the words of Jesus? Once a week, you just bring up the question, hey, this is what God has shown me this week. How about you? I'd also ask you, where's prayer to live in your family? And if prayer is just something we do right before we eat, because apparently the most important thing to Jesus is that we never put a bite of food into our mouth that hasn't been blessed, right? <laughs> Still trying to find where that one is. Um, but if that's what prayer is, what is your family's relationship with Jesus going to be? Prayer is talking to our Heavenly Father. It's talking to Jesus. And it's really, really hard to have a relationship with someone you never talk to. When things are bad in your family, what's the response? When your spouse has a hard day, do you pray for each other? You got a big project coming up, finals are approaching. Do you pray together for those things? There's things in your world that, that you're concerned about, and so do you pray about those things together as a family? Or do you just run to Facebook? Let me tell you, if you're not bringing Jesus into the mess of your family, how is Jesus going to change the mess of your family? I'd ask you, are you in community center around Jesus? Do you worship together as a family in a corporate body in a church? Is that a part of who you are as a family? Are you in small group communities that are challenging you to grow? And I don't mean our kids go to small group while we do groceries for an hour and a half. Are you all in small groups that are inviting you to grow and become disciples of Jesus? As a family, are you serving anywhere? It's really hard to look like the Son of Man who came to serve and not be served when all we're doing is taking in. Lastly, I'd ask you sort of a funny question, and that is, does Jesus get to ride in the car with you? I mean, the everyday boring stuff. Does Jesus get to be a part of that too? You're on the way to soccer practice. Does Jesus get to be in the conversation that happens in the car? Sitting at the dinner table, does Jesus get to be a part of the conversation? When you're, when you're disciplining, does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus have any bearing on what we do as a family? Does Jesus get to be a part of every bit of our lives? Simply put, I think the truth is this. If you are not bringing Jesus into your family's life every day, you will not see Jesus change the everyday life of your family. That sounds great, right? Maybe you're sitting here, though, and you're thinking... I don't know. I don't know. We're not all on the same page about who Jesus is in our family. What you said sounds great, but we are so far from all of that, and I wouldn't even know where to start. I'm not the one who makes the decisions for my family. I'm a teenager. 
I'm single and I don't really have much of a family. I'm older and, and my family doesn't live with me anymore. What do we do? I would tell you if, if, if you're not all in agreement on who this Jesus guy is. And that's hard for me. Don't ever stop praying. Don't ever stop praying. Pray that, that those individuals, that they would encounter the resurrection the way that James did. And if you're on that journey and you're still trying to sort out who this Jesus guy is, please push into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and don't give up. See if he is who he says he is. If you're waiting for your family to be in final form before you begin to bring Jesus into it, you'll never start. Okay, there's always a step ahead that's going to be the next form that our family takes. The choices I make right now influence the grandparent that I will be. And so if you're waiting for your family to be figured out or fit right to bring Jesus into it, you're never going to start. And if you say, we're way far away from all of this and I don't know where to start, I would tell you, you don't have to be in shape to go to the gym. Okay, you don't know where to start, start somewhere with something. Just don't stay where you are. Maybe the place you need to start is by making a choice. Because that's what being made new is. It is a choice every single day to ask Jesus for the same things that Paul asked for the Ephesians. Jesus, change me so that I would know the hope that you've called me to. Jesus, change me so that I would know just how good a life this one is. Jesus changed me so that I could experience the power that's able to transform anything. So we're going to invite you to do that today. We're going to do something a little bit different. Um, normally, at the end of service, and we're still going to do this, end of service is just like normal. And if you don't know what normal is, if you want to talk to somebody about your relationship with Jesus, if you want to talk about your relationship with Crossroads as a church, or you just need prayer, stay seated. We have section hosts and we have pastors that would love to come and spend some time with you and do whatever you need. But in a minute here, I'm going to invite you to stand and say a prayer. And we're going to say that prayer out loud together. And this is what it says. It says, Jesus, today I thank you for the hope you've given me. I pray you would help me know that hope today even more than I did yesterday. Remind me of how much better life can be when it's lived in you. So today I give myself again to you completely. Change me as an individual, as a child, as a sibling, as a spouse, as a parent, and as a grandparent now and for the rest of my life. Change me with the same power that was able to conquer death. I need that power. My family needs that power. Our world needs that power. You're the only one who can change us, and today I ask you to start by changing me. I want to invite you to not just pray that prayer today. And if you're not ready to say that, if you're not comfortable saying that, totally fine, don't worry about it. But if that sounds like what you want your heart to be, don't just say it today. I invite you to say it every day. We've printed that prayer on cards that look like this and they're in your pews. 
in the chapel, there's going to be people handing them out when you're walking out. We've even put this up on our website. Okay, if you want to put it as the, the background for your phone, the wallpaper, or the desktop on your computer, you can download it there. You just click the All Things New banner when you get to our website. And I invite you to put this card where you're going to see it. The mirror, your medicine cabinet, the dresser, the visor, your car, background to your phone. Wherever you're going to see it and be invited to ask for those things every day. How much different would your life be? How much different would your world be if you started every day like that? How different could your family be if you all started your days with this? What if every Monday before you went out to the craziness of life, you all stood around the kitchen counter and you said this together? How different could our city be if 4,000 people started their day like this? I would love to find out. So if you're ready, go ahead and stand. And let's pray. Jesus, today I thank you for the hope you've given me. I pray you would help me know that hope today even more than I did yesterday. Remind me of how much better life can be when it's lived in you. So today I give myself again to you completely. Change me as an individual, as a child, as a sibling, as a spouse, as a parent, and as a grandparent, now for the rest of my life. Change me with the same power that was able to conquer death. I need that power. My family needs that power. Our world needs that power. You're the only one who can change us. And today I ask you to start by changing me.